Well, hello, Grove. We continue to pray for you as we all adjust to this new normal in our lives. And let me tell you, the new normal has made it incredibly quiet around the church. Typically, there's a lot of action going on. But really, today, it's like a ghost town at the church. No, The staff is all at home, except for Brenda and Gretchen and I. We have an apartment here at the church, so we live here. So we're in this big building rattling around. So just us. Then you, then you take the fact that the preschool is not here. 175 three to five-year-olds running up and down the halls. That tends to make a little bit of craziness. So no staff, no preschool, very few people coming through the doors. Uh, of course, there's Amazon. They're coming through FedEx, the post office, a, a few, a few church members here and here and there. But but mostly it's just quiet, and it's it's just a weird feeling to be rattling around in this building. I'm sure it's the same thing for you at your home. Um, very little interaction physically with people. It's just a weird, weird, weird season. But as weird as it might be, it can it can also be an incredibly positive season, as you use this time to recalibrate your life, to to focus on God, to to seek his will, to, to align yourself more fully with who he is and what he says and what, what he wants. This weird season, if you will allow it to be, could really be a life-altering season as you determine to walk more closely and more fully with him. And as your pastor, I want to encourage you to do exactly that. Now, today we're coming to the close of our of our series from the book of James. James was probably the first book or first letter that was penned of the 27 books of the New Testament. It was written to the first Jewish Christians who were scattered as a result of the great persecution that rose up at the at the hands of Saul. We read about that in the book of Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. The, le the letter is chocked full of practical advice on how to, to live the Christian life. And I hope it's been enlightening for you. I hope it's been life-changing for you. I hope you've taken the opportunity to, to allow the Word of God to infiltrate your life and to move you to new, to new places. And as we begin today in this 10th and last message, I, I want to remind you of an, of, of an incredibly important truth. And that's, uh, that, that deals when it, with your reading or studying from the Word of God. And when we are reading or studying, we must always make sure that we are correctly handling the Bible. For, Forty years ago, as I entered into Bible college, this, this verse out of 2 Timothy was, was, was pounded into my head. Paul writes to Timothy right before he died. He said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, one who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, handling the handling the word of God begins with interpreting it correctly. Interpreting God's word is a subject I've been encouraging you on an increasing level for some times. And, and honestly, I'm going to continue to push you down this road. Why? Because we live in a day and an age where the interpretation of God's word has literally come undone. We've, we've, we've moved from the authority of God's word 
to, to a self-centered approach to theology. We, we've, we've moved from saying this is God's word and I need to, to listen to what it says to a, a, a belief that I am the authority, what I think and what I feel matters. And as a result, there's all kinds of shoddy theology out there. Uh, th- this, this is why every Bible college student, every seminary student t- takes courses <laughs> takes courses in hermeneutics. Now, what is hermeneutics? Well, hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, principles of how to correctly or properly exegete or understand what God has communicated to us in His Word. If, if you want to properly study a book, there are rules of interpretation that you need to follow. That, that's hermeneutics. And, and, and two of the top rules of interpretation are these. Number one, you always need to interpret from the vantage point of the author's intended meaning. The goal of interpreting the Bible is, is to understand what God said. You are not here to try to understand what you think God said or what something means to you. When you are properly interpreting a book, you are, you are understanding that book from the vantage point of the one who wrote it and who is trying to communicate. Interpretation should never begin with the reader. It should always begin with the author. What did the author intend to say? The Bible is God's message, not mine. And the purpose of interpretation is to get his message, to fully understand it. And that leads to the second principle I want to remind you of, and that's that you always need to interpret in context. The letters of the New Testament were intended to be read in one sitting, taking in the whole. When these letters were written, there were, it, was, it was like a letter you would receive in the mail today or over, over an email today. There, there, there were no chapters. There were no verses. There were, they were letters with a purpose that flowed from the beginning to the end, and the author intended the readers to read it that way from beginning to end. And that's how, that's how you should read them, in the context of the whole. Today, today we have way too many people who are reading a phrase or a verse at a time. Or they, or they pull one verse out of, out of a book, and then they form a theology around that verse. And I'm just telling you, it is a horrible way to read the Bible. It, it, context is king. To fully understand what God is saying, you have to understand what was written before, what's written after. You, you have to take a look at the whole message from beginning to the end. Each verse is understood by those verses around it, and eventually from the letter as a whole, and, and then, honestly, from the Bible as a whole. The Word of God is one consistent message from the beginning to the end. And to fully understand it, you have to see it that way. It, it does not contradict itself. It stands holistically and uniformly. Now, Proper interpretation makes sure the piece you are reading is understood in the context of the whole. So if you're reading a piece of the Bible that seems to contradict another piece of the Bible, well, here's the deal. It's not the Bible that has a problem. It's you that have a problem. You're reading and interpreting it incorrectly. Now, why have I taken a few minutes to say all of this? Here's why. Because the last eight verses of James are among the most misinterpreted 
verses in the entire Bible. They, they, they are read, they're misunderstood, and then they're misapplied. And faulty theology has been the result of that wrong reading. So what is the subject of this misapplied theology in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20? Simply, prayer. As James brings his short little five-chapter letter to an end, the encouragement is to not forget the resource that has been laid right into our laps. When things get crazy in the world, Christians have prayer to help them navigate through the craziness of life. And if there's one truth that I want you to take away today, if there's one truth I want you to cement into your mind, it's simply this. Prayer is powerful. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, prayer of the prayer of a righteous man is, is powerful and it's effective. Now, it's interesting that the word power really does not appear in the original Greek text. In fact, if, you're, if you were to literally translate the words, it would look like this. The prayer of a righteous person is very effective in its work. And, and, I, and I really, I want you to write this down. Take a moment in your notes and scribble that, those, those words, that sentence, and, and do it right next to James 5.16 to remind yourself that this is the literal translation of the, of the Greek. And the, and, and the equation that James is putting in front of us that, that pops out of this is really simple. And, and, I, and, I, and I want you to write this down too. To, 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 to have this powerful to have this powerful experience in your life, you begin with prayer. God has called us to be involved in a consistent prayer life with him. And to prayer, you add righteousness. Righteousness simply speaks of a person who, who does what God wants. That They are closely in turn in tune with God's word, what God commands, what God says, how God leads. And they follow him very, very, very closely. Have you, have you ever noticed that there, there are some people who, whose prayers just seem to, to be answered. It's like, it's like they have a direct pipeline to God. And the key is that their prayers are righteous prayers. They are centered, fully aligned with God's will. And that's the last part of the, this equation. All of this equals effective prayers. Effective prayers are centered, they're focused in righteousness. They're centered and they're focused in God's will. So the equation looks like this, prayer, plus righteousness equals effective prayers. You, you want to have an effective prayer life? You want to have the kind of prayer life that prayers are just being answered? Bang, 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 bang. This is the equation. Begin with prayer. Center your prayers in, in, in the Lord's will, in His purpose, and, and watch prayers be answered powerfully. Instead of getting discouraged about a prayer life that doesn't seem to work, take the principles here, at the end of James' letter, and put them to work in your personal life, in your personal prayer life, and watch what happens. Now, with that said, I want to, I want to jump in and share with you a few pertinent thoughts that James lays out about prayer, uh, thoughts that have been really misinterpreted and misunderstood. And I want to encourage you with, with three truths, and I want to encourage you to write them down. And it begins with this thought, prayer is intended for all seasons of your life. James 5.13 says, if any one of you is in trouble, he should pray. Is anyone happy? 
Let him sing songs of praise. Now, I want you, I want you to notice the two words here. The first one is trouble. If you are in trouble. And the word here is kakopatheo. Kakopatheo. The, the word speaks of being afflicted, undergoing hardship, suffering trouble. This this trouble in your life are the moments when the rug is literally just pulled out from underneath you. It's just ripped out. And and, and when it happens, you're left exposed, hurt, damaged. And James says, when you are in this afflicted, suffering, troubled place, you should pray. And then James adds this word, happy. If you're happy, if you're troubled, if you're happy. Now, now this this, this word happy speaks of being cheerful. It speaks of being in a good spirit, joyful, merry. And, and, and really, the word is the complete antithesis of the word trouble. This, this, this would be opposite ends of the spectrum. Trouble, happy. From the valley to the mountaintop. When you're in this situation, it's like everything is right with the world, and everything is just humming along. It's just, it's just purring. It's just perfect. And the encouragement is, when you are on this mountaintop in life, that you should pray. The the words really serve as bookends of the place where God wants prayer to occur in your life. From trouble to happy, from one extreme to the other. James is saying that we should pray at these points. And the connotation here in in this passage in James 5 is that prayer should occupy these two places and really every place in between. Now, interestingly, when good things are happening in our lives, we oftentimes find ourselves just kind of skipping along and, and hardly thinking about God. Tell me, when, when does your prayer life become more intense? And I, I think you're like me. It probably becomes more intense when, when I'm in painful circumstances. And prayer in times of pain is a great response. The Bible is riddled with examples here. God, God wants you crying out to him when you're in trouble, when you're in pain. But it's not just pain. Prayer is an ongoing conversation with God. Not just the painful seasons, but the happy seasons in every place in between. That, that's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray continually. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and make sure that you are always faithful in prayer. God is interested in all of your circumstance, all the circumstance of your life. And in every situation, in every season we find ourselves, we should be praying. James was addressing people who were suffering unbelievable persecution. And to those people, James ended his letter with the encouragement to pray. Pray for your circumstance, but not just your present painful circumstance, your every circumstance. And then James moves on to what is that troubled place. And that's the second thought here. When you are spiritually vulnerable, you need to make sure that you are broadening your prayer life. And then James moves on to the second point. And, it, and the second point is really where the problem begins to happen in our interpretation. James says, when you are spiritually vulnerable, you need to be sure to broaden your prayer life. In chapter 5, verse 14, he says, is there any of you who are sick? Well, he should call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick 
person well, the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So here's the million dollar question. Does this passage teach about physical healing? Is God teaching here that he wants every Christian to be healthy, no sickness? And the answer is no. But there are people who want you to believe that that's true. They, they point at the words in, 15, in, in verse 15 and they make a declaration. I'm saying that this is so, God wants me healthy, I will not have this disease, I will not have this, I will not have this pain, I will not have, I, I am sick, now I'm healed, God promised me that I would be well, God, God heal me, end of story. The problem is, we all know all kinds of people who have been sick, and they haven't been made well. In fact, we know people that have been sick, and have been sick for a long time, and then have died. The top of my personal list of people in this condition are my mom and my dad. They both died from medical issues. My mom, my mom died from a botched up surgery. My dad died from AML, acute myeloid leukemia. It's a terminal form of leukemia. He was diagnosed 13 months later, he was gone. So what was the reason that my parents died because the people that were praying, including my mom or my dad, didn't have enough faith? Were the people literally from around the world who were praying for my mom and dad really not true believers, really not faithful in their prayer? No, not at all. I, I believe that God could have healed in a, in, a, in, a, in a second both of my parents. But for whatever reason, he chose not to. So did God break his promise to my parents? Was, was, was God promising that all people would be, would be well? And for my parents, well, not so. No, see, it raises... An important question, does God promise us health and wealth? Now, if you're a follower of God, the question is, can you expect that you will never be sick and that you will always have a zillion dollars in your bank account? And the answer to that is no, hardly. We, we know from experience that that isn't true. The, here's the deal. There are no 125-year-old Christians walking around us. There are no 300-year-old Christians walking around us. The point is we are all going to die. That, that is our earthly plight. Since sin entered into the race back in Genesis chapter 3, the, the promise to all of us is that we were going to die. God did not promise you that if you follow him, you will be free from sickness or disease, or that you will be instantly healed if you ever got to a point where it was around you. I mean, in today's coronavirus, wouldn't that be nice if, if somebody could just say, make it go away, and boom, it was gone? The, the, the truth is, in fact, the promise of the Bible is that as followers of Jesus, we're going to have trouble, pain, hardship, difficulty, even disease. It is, it is part of the earthly condition. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul reveals that he suffered from what he called a thorn in the flesh. Now, what this malady was has been debated by theologians, and really nobody has an answer because we don't have that direct pipeline to Paul. But some people wondered if maybe he had malaria. Some people, it, it, at the end of one of his writings, he says, see what large letters I write with my own hands. They, they think that he had some kind of eyesight problem. Well, whatever the case may have been, the point is that in his physical ailment, Paul was, Paul was passionate about praying and seeking God, and asking God. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that three times he 
he asked God to take it away. And the word that he uses in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 is he pleaded with God. He was passionately pleading, take this away. And, and all three times God said, no. The physical ailment that was inflicted upon Paul, and I don't believe that God put it there, but God chose not to take it away. Why? Because that, that, inf that infection into Paul's life, whatever it may have been, was forcing Paul to be more fully connected and more fully reliant upon God. So Paul declared that he would delight in his weakness because it actually made him strong. I'm strong because I'm not relying on myself. I'm strong because I'm relying upon God, God's mighty hands. And as Christians, it works the same way for you. You, you are not guaranteed an ailment-free, diseased-free, trouble-free life. So to think this passage teaches that, well, that goes against everything else we know from Scripture. Remember, it goes against what the whole teaches, and we need to interpret in context the author's intended meaning and in context. The people James was writing to had most definitely suffered. And if anything, James encouraged them to know that their suffering was a positive thing. As it was for Paul, it was for them too. Read chapter 2. Read chapter 5. It's going to help them develop patience. Chapter 5. It's going to lead them to maturity and in their walk with God. Chapter 2. Or chapter 1. So the encouragement was to be joy-filled when problems and trials came into their life. So, so no, God does not promise a pain-free existence for his followers. We are all eventually going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, which if that happened today, tomorrow, next week, it'd be a good thing. But if Jesus tarries in his return, given enough time, we are all going to die. And in the process of living here on earth, you can be sure that you will have seasons where you are physically sick, even suffer horrible ailments, cancer, diabetes, stroke, heart disease. So if James is not teaching us that we can be free from any physical sickness, then what is he trying to say? And to that, to that question, I, I, want, I, want to, I want to share an important thought. And that's this word, sick, in verse 14, if any of you are sick, astheneo is the word. Now, it's found 18 times in the New Testament, mostly in the gospel gospel accounts. And in these 18 times, these particular 18 times, it's always speaking directly to sickness. Like in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. In this chapter, Jesus is getting ready to send out the 72, and he's giving them instructions. In Matthew 10, 7, he says, as you go preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then heal the sick, the ostheneo, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely receive, freely give. This is, a, this is clearly an indication that the word means help those who are physically ill, sick. And then it, th there are other places, like in Matthew 25 or in Mark 6, where this, the same word appears 18 times, where the, the connotation is sickness. But it also is used 14 other times in the New Testament to refer to emotional or spiritual weakness. In Romans chapter 14, Paul instructs believers who are strong in their faith to be careful of those who are weak. Same word, weak, astheneo. 
the words say, accept, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man's faith whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The, the exact same word, asaneho, sickness and weakness. And in this case, it has nothing to do with being sick. It has to do with being maybe more immature in your faith or weaker in your faith or a little bit more narrow-minded in your faith. And this is the context that James is using the word here in chapter 5. He's written to a group of people who have been beat down. They have suffered horrendous persecution at the hands of Saul and the other Jewish leaders, physically, emotional, spiritually. And that beating left them weak, vulnerable, easy prey for the enemy. They, I, you, you have to believe that they were beginning, to, maybe some of them, to ask, where, where is God? They had to wonder if this Christian thing was all a lie. They had to, they had to wonder if following Jesus and the end was really, really worth it. They had, to, they had to wonder if they should keep going on or if they should just quit, stop, give up. I'm sure there were some of them that were starting to already make that decision, dropping their Christian faith, walking back to their old lives and, and doing what they were doing before they came to Christ. I'm sure there have maybe been times in your personal life where you've been in that position. Something bad happens, and before you know it, you're doubting God, or you're walking away from Him. The trials and cares of life did not bring you closer to Him. They actually pulled you away from Him. I, I, I can see it happening to people in the circumstance that we are in right, ha- right now with the coronavirus. I follow God. I've been faithful. I've read His Word. I've studied. I've grown I've, in my faith. I, I've served in the ministry of the church. I've written checks. I've tithed my income, and now, now I've, lost, I've lost my job, my health. Benefits are in jeopardy. My, my retirement account is moving literally into the toilet. It's taking a huge hit. Where is God? What, what's the use of following him? So what do you do when you're hurting and are potentially losing your faith? Well, James says you should pray. In all circumstances, troubled, happy, and every place in between, when you find yourself in jeopardy or weak, you should pray. But James goes further here. When you're on a weakened, when you're on a weakened platform in your life and you're ready to walk away, before you do, you should take some definitive steps. James instructs us first to call the elders of the church. James 5:14. Is, is, are any of you sick? And read the, again, read the word weak. If you're weak, then call the elders of the church. When you are in a spiritually weakened state, call the spiritually mature to pray over you. I mean, it only makes sense. When you're in a position of vulnerability, you need people who are sure, who are not vulnerable, who are strong in their walk with God. Men and women who are strong in their faith, who are confident in their faith. There's something comforting about those who are spiritually mature and can see things in a very godly perspective. And I'm just telling you, I need those people in my life. When I, when I want to give up, when I want to quit, and you may think pastors never have this problem. Not true. When, you are, when I'm at a point where I, where I feel like giving up and quitting, I need people around me who are strong. I need those people to bring encouragement and help to me when I'm weak. So when you're weak and you're starting to give in, call the elders of the church. Call the spiritually mature. Let let them bring you the help and support you need. And then 
James adds this thought. Let the spiritually mature cover you with prayer and anointing. Is any of you sick? Again, read weak. Is any of you weak? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is describing the same type of praying as part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 26, Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Ostheneo. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. I mean, the, the, the passage is intended to bring you comfort. There, there are times when you are at the spiritual end of your rope and you don't know what to do and you just find yourself mumbling. You don't even know what to pray. You don't even know what to say. You don't even know what to think. And the Holy Spirit who lives in you at that moment is, is interceding on your behalf. He knows what you think. He knows what you feel. He knows what you're going through. And he is taking that thought and that prayer to the very throne of God and he is uttering it for you. When you're weak, when you're vulnerable, you need the spiritually mature to do the same thing for you. The ministry of the elders of the church is not to lord over you. It's not to, it's not to demand your attention and service of them. No, the, the elders are here to serve you, to lift you up. It's a wise thing for a weak, defeated, beaten down, troubled Christian to seek the strength and support of their church leaders. And I'm telling you, if you're struggling, the leaders here at our church would love to come to your aid. So seek them out. Let them pray over you. If you don't know how to get in touch with them, go to our website. There, there's a place where you can, you can email the elders and cry out to them. They'd be happy to come to your rescue. And know this, their ministry goes further than prayer. They would honestly like to anoint you with oil. Now, in, 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 in the days of the biblical narrative, when, when the people of God were walking the earth, in the days when the Bible was written, medical science was in its infancy. Now, oftentimes, people who were hurting physically would be anointed with oil. It was, it was like a salve. It was a lotion, an ointment. And the, the purpose was to bring about some healing and some restoration. When it, when it comes to the weak and spiritually vulnerable, this, this anointing with oil is a spiritual reminder that God is with us and will give us the strength to see us through. And so, in fact, if you are with the elders and they're going to pray over you, lots of times what they'll do is take oil on their fingers and, they'll, and they'll, on your forehead, put that oil in the form of a cross. The, 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 again, the picture is there as, as a reminder of the Spirit's presence and covering in your life. Remember, David talked about this in the 23rd Psalm. In, in, in verse 5, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The oil speaks of this spiritual restoration and a covering by the Holy Spirit to see us through. And, and it serves as a great encouragement for those of us who are weak in our faith that God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We are covered through his spirit. So to those who are weak, James brings an encouragement. Call for the elders of the church. Allow them to pray over you. Allow them to anoint you. Be encouraged by the strong 
arms of those faithful followers and, and deep seasoned followers of God, lifting you up and helping you along. And then James makes a third statement here. When you're weak, if you need to, confess your sins. The words in verse 16 are confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I mean, it's just a simple truth. Oftentimes, we feel far from God because of our own personal rebellion. Have you ever been there? Do you know what I mean? When you're in a state of habitually breaking the commandments of God, it can put you in a position of feeling weak, feeling far from God. And the resolve? Confess it. Repent. I mean, the word repent literally means turn around. If you're on a wrong road, get on the right road. Make a U-turn and get back on the path of following God. I love Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter says, repent then, repent, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out in a time of refreshing may come from the Lord. There's nothing more powerful than making a declaration that you're leaving disobedience behind and turning to God. And when you do, God is quick to wrap his arms around you and restoration follows. And that's, that's exactly what James is proclaiming right here at the end of chapter 5. The prayer offered in faith, chapter 5, verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick, read weak, will make the weak person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be given. Do you, do you see the restoration? And, 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 and when that happens, it will unleash a spirit in you of joy, a spirit of your being restored, your being being restored into right relationship with God. Now, as James is winding down his words to those first scattered Jewish Christians, he reminds them that they needed to be steeped in prayer. Let prayer be the bookends of your life in trouble times and happy times and everything in between, continually praying. And when you are feeling weak and spiritually defeated, call for the elders of the church. Let the spiritually mature, the strong, pray over you and anoint you with oil. Be strengthened by their deep and abiding walk with the Lord. And then James adds one more thought. Because the truth is, all of us are going to be in positions where we are the weak ones in the relationship. And there will be times when we are the strong ones. And when you are in that position of strength, James says, actively pursue the restoration of lost believers. James 5.19, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I mean, there is nothing more spiritual than for a Christian to go after a fellow believer who is in trouble. When people have turned away from God, our response should never be, oh, well, haven't seen them for a while. Oh, well, wonder what happened to them. Oh, too bad for them. We should be praying actively for our brothers and sisters. And when someone is wandering, we should be so involved in each other's lives that we are actively pursuing them. This was the ministry of Jesus. He didn't just let people go. I love 
I love Luke 19.10, where Jesus is coming in contact with Zacchaeus. And as the crowd is going crazy because Zacchaeus was the biggest sinner in town, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In John chapter 21, Peter had wandered off. After the, res- after the resurrection, Peter had denied him the night that Jesus was being tried. And Peter was so embarrassed and so put down by what he had done, he ran. And what did Jesus do? He ran after him. John 21, he went, he walked 70 miles to restore his brother into the faith. Luke chapter 15, we read about the three lost parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And in the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd, the shepherd doesn't just shrug his shoulders, I got 99 sheep that are here, you know, I got 99% of them. No, the shepherd is concerned about the one that's gone astray and the one who's in trouble, the one who's easy prey for predators. And the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes and finds the one. And as he brings this one back with great rejoicing, you read in the text that, that there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinful person's returning home. The angels love this. You you are being like Jesus. In fact, you are never more like Jesus than when you care enough to go after those who are weak and have wandered. Pray about it? Yeah, yeah, pray. Be praying for your brothers and sisters who are struggling, but understand this right at the beginning that the answer to that prayer is, Lord, should I do something? The answer is, yes, of course you should do something. Go after them. Don't hesitate. Now, brothers, sisters, We are living in troubling times. There's just absolutely no doubt about that. Things are unlike anything I have ever experienced in my life. And it it was in this exact kind of environment, this exact kind of troubling day, that James wrote his letter to those first persecuted and scattered Jewish Christians. The words and advice through James are practical, And the conclusion is really simple, pray. And when God's people determine to undergird and overlay their lives in prayer, when we are seeking God, seeking his truth, seeking his will, seeking his heart, when we are seeking to align ourselves with who he is, powerful things happen. Prayer plus righteousness equals powerful results. Those prayers are not without effect. Listen, friends, as I think about this day, I know that it's not a day for shrinking back. It's not a day for wondering if God is present, because here's the truth. He is present. Jesus is on the throne. In fact, you ought to be repeating that self, that, that, that phrase to yourself. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. If you, if you have a moment in your day where you're questioning, then tell yourself he is still on the throne. And he can use these very troubling circumstances, these trying times, to do great, amazing, and powerful work. The lost finding the Savior, the wayward finding their way home, the Christian follower to be strengthened in his walk. So my encouragement, take the step. Turn to him. And to help us do that, let's pray. Pray at every turn of our lives. Let's let's commit to each other to pray continually. Hey, join me right now and let's do that. Father, We are grateful for the truth that you are the Lord, that you are God, 
that you do sit on the throne, that you are present there now, that you are watching, that you are concerned and that you care. And Father, in this day of great trouble, our prayer is that you would help us to see you very clearly, to hear you very clearly. And Father, for the, for the weak among us, we pray. We pray that they will, they will not be shattered. We pray that they will not be destroyed. We pray that the enemy will not have a foothold in their lives. Father, help everybody who's struggling to do what James says to do, to pray and to surround themselves with those who are strong in the faith to encourage them and lift them up and maybe even anoint them with oil. And Father, for every person that is in our, is in our circle, that's in our community, that is finding themselves in a wayward position, may we be the people to go after them to help restore them into their faith. We're grateful, Lord, that you love us. We're grateful that you care. And we're grateful that you have the path in your hand and you will see us through. And so, Father, we put ourselves right there, trusting that you are good and you are able and you will bring us to completion. And we lift it up in the name of Jesus, the one who makes the prayer possible. Amen.